the book of Judges. You see, the book of Judges is full of underdog victories because of the Lord. Um, it shows an unfortunate history in Israel because uh, you can see a cycle. It kind of gets old after a while because you just kind of want to smack your forehead and say, good grief, why couldn't, uh, why couldn't they get it together? But we have to remember that uh, we have our own problems, so let's not be too hard on them. But Judges shows the up and down history of Israel. If you look at each story, pretty much they would leave God, then they would fall into distress because the Lord would, would not protect them from their enemies since they had left him. They would cry out to him. He would send a deliverer. And then after the deliverer helped uh, free Israel, they would serve him, God, for a time. And then when the deliverer died, then they would go right back to leaving him. And actually, a lot of times, even worse. They would keep going worse and worse. The story of Gideon, in, starting in Judges chapter 6, is no exception to this trend. You see, as we read in the scripture reading, the Israelites had done evil in the sight of the Lord. It, it, you, you'll find that phrase quite often in the Old Testament, unfortunately. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. That could be all sorts of things. Most of the time, it's connected with idolatry, leaving the Lord, worshiping another God. And so God said, to get you back to me, I'm going to withdraw my protection. And so who comes in? The Midianites. Now we say, oh, okay, the Midianites, the whateverites, you know, who cares about the Midianites? I don't remember who they are. Well, let me refresh you. This was not just uh, another group of people that just happened to want to come in. If you remember your story of Moses and the children of Israel just upon the borders of the promised land, the Midianites with Balaam tried to destroy Israel by, by drawing them away from God, and the Israelites had beaten down Midian quite severely. And so the Midianites were looking for blood. And because God withdrew his protection, because the Israelites were, were going uh, away from him, the Midianites came in. And now they weren't just fighting against Israel. Oh, no, that wasn't enough. What they would do is they would wait just right until, right when they could taste the grapes almost. Oh, tomorrow. I'm going to harvest my grapes, and tomorrow I'm going to harvest my barley, and, oh, you know, finally we'll get some good food. And then here come the Midianite, and not just Midianites, Amalekites, and all the people of the east, it said. Have mercy. I don't know why they all decided to get together against Israel, but they did. They would come in, this great horde, and sweep across the land, uh, just totally eating up all of the produce. So if you imagine, you... Uh, just go to the grocery store and you've just bought all of your food and you're going out with your cart. Oh, I can just taste that meal. I know I'm going to go home and I'm going to make this meal. And just as you're getting it to your car, a huge band of thieves come and they shove you down and they steal all your food and take it away. And ah, no, but I just spent my money on this food. And, and, and that would be pretty, pretty uh, frustrating. Not only to happen once, but to keep happening for seven years. That would be pretty tough. You would have to scrounge together, uh, you know, maybe a, so, some dry beans back in the dusty part of your of your uh, cupboard there, and uh, and it wouldn't be that nice of a meal. Well, this is what the Midianites were doing. They were playing a, a terrible warfare game 
on them, to decrease their morale, to hurt them, to get to have them famished to where they couldn't fight back. Well, this was very discouraging. And then finally, as God was hoping the whole time, the, the, the Israelites decided to cry out to God. And they remember, hey, you know what? Maybe we should ask God if he'll help us in this situation. You know, sometimes we, we're slow. Uh, sometimes we're slow. Uh, there are many times when I've been toiling away at something and, oh, how am I going to fix it? And I, I, I know you've never been there before. No, you've just never been there. Where you're just trying to, trying to do this, you're trying to accomplish this, and then finally you realize, you know what, maybe I ought to commit this to the Lord. And then after you do that, well, the, the Lord just makes it all fall together. Uh, well, this is, this is what happened with the Israelites. They needed to remember that God was there for them if they would turn back. So they cried out to the Lord, and luckily God was merciful. And so enters Gideon. Gideon, our main uh, protagonist for this story. Gideon. And where was he? Where, somebody call out to me. Where was Mr. Gideon when we see him at the beginning of the story? In the wine press. Well, that sounds pretty legitimate. You know, he's in the wine press. What was he doing in the wine press? Wait a second. Why was he threshing his grain in a wine press? That doesn't really go together. You usually do something with grapes, right, in a wine press. You know, he had, he had grain in there. Why was he? Now, I heard somebody say hiding. No, no, mighty Gideon, an Israelite wouldn't hide, would he? Oops. Yeah. Gideon was pretty discouraged. And what little grain that the hordes left over, he decided, oh my goodness, I have to hide this, and so I'll have some food to eat. And so he's, he's threshing grain, and it's, it says also beating out grain, right, and beating out the grain in this wine press because no one was looking toward the grapes at this moment. The grapes time wasn't, you know, that, that time wasn't yet. Uh, and so he's there, and as you can imagine, being humiliated, having to hide, and beat out his grain, he is probably thinking, how in the world can we be free from this Midianite oppression? And I don't know how many times you all have had difficulties in your life where you are constantly wondering, how can this be solved? And you're there dealing with this difficulty. Maybe it's a financial difficulty. Maybe it's a family difficulty. And you're toiling through and you're saying, how can this, in a discouraging sigh, how can this possibly turn around? Well, luckily, I don't know how many times Gideon had to do that, but luckily, the angel of the Lord, it says, appeared to Gideon. And what does he say to Gideon? What does he say? And this is not a rhetorical question. What does he say, friends? The Lord is with you, you what? You mighty man of valor. Now, okay, hold on. I don't know. There, there are a couple options here. Either the Lord had a wonderful sense of humor, uh, and, and he was looking at this guy beating out his grain all downcast and defeated and calling him a mighty man of valor. Or perhaps, yes, Gideon was a mighty man of valor, but just didn't have the friends, the people to be with him to fight back. Either way... The Lord comes with encouragement in the midst of discouragement, right? The Lord comes, and even when it seems like he's just 
a worthless little guy beating out his grain, hiding in a wine press. The Lord comes over and says, I am with you, you mighty man of valor. And I say the Lord because you'll notice in this story, it goes back and forth between saying the angel of the Lord and the Lord. And we notice from other stories that angel doesn't always mean a specific winged you know, angel messenger. It's just the messenger of God, which can be seen as the pre-incarnate Jesus. We'll, we find that uh, as, we, as we do that study. So this is the Lord himself coming to give a message to downtrodden Gideon. And he says, the Lord is with you. Now, now, let's not fault Gideon too much uh, about his response, because haven't there been times when you have looked at the circumstances and you've seen an almost insurmountable obstacle in your way, and then someone says, the Lord's going to take care of this. What, what, what's your response? Maybe you don't say it. <laughs> you don't say it. You don't say it, but we're, we're, we might be guilty of this. We think, uh-huh. The Lord's going to take care of this, huh? Well, where has he been this whole time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to know that. But we, you know, we don't say that because we'll get in trouble. We don't say that. But, but we may think it. And you know what? Gideon has enough courage to say, really? Because I've just been wondering a little bit, sir, where all those miracles were that our fathers talk about. You know, like the mighty exodus and all of these things. I would kind of like to know. When that's going to happen again, because I would sure appreciate it. And you know, it's interesting because the Lord doesn't say, okay, let me explain to you. He just says, go, for I've sent you. Go on. And then Gideon says, but I just, he, he's having a little bit of a hang up because right now in his mind, it's him against the Midianite army. <laughs> and so that's a little bit scary. And so he's wondering, is this for real? And I know that uh, many of you have wondered that. Is this for real? When it seems like a blessing is being put right in your hands, can I, can I really trust this? Or am I just going to fall flat on my face again if I trust this? Is this for real? And so what does Gideon do? The only thing he can think of is, well, I'm going to just see what happens when I bring an offering. I'm going to bring an offering, and I'm going to ask him to stay. So he says, please, would you just hang out, basically, using modern language. Would you just hang out for a minute? I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare a little meal. I'm going to prepare an offering, and I'm going to bring it back to you. And the Lord says, go for it. So Gideon goes, and now, mind you, he doesn't have a whole lot of food. Right? Because not only would the Midianites steal all the grain and the grapes, they would steal the livestock too. And so, and so this was actually a big sacrifice for Gideon to do this. So he goes and he makes some cakes and he gets some broth and different things. And this is, this is not from his excess. So sometimes we think of a sacrifice. Let me sacrifice for the Lord and give this when really you didn't really need it in the first place. You're giving to God from your excess. But man, there's really something about when we give to God when it could hurt. And we put, it, we put ourselves on him. Like the widow in Jesus' time who gave everything she had, even though it was just two pennies. He said she gave more than everyone else. Well, Gideon is coming with a faith-filled heart, even though it needs to grow. 
He's coming and he's putting his offering before the angel. And what happens? The angel says, put on the rock. And then he touches it with the edge of his staff. And fire goes up and then he's gone. He can't see him anymore. And now like a lot of other people, um, well actually first I should ask, does Gideon say, awesome, I just saw... I just saw the Lord. I just saw the angel of the Lord, the Lord's messenger, the covenant messenger. This is great. Cool. Does he say that? Is he, is he totally confident? No. But why not? Well, maybe we, we would be a little bit nervous, too, if that happened. Well, what happens is Gideon starts to freak out because he just saw this miracle and he has seen this being face to face. And so he falls down and says, oh, my, oh, my. I've just seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And then God says from out of, out of the empty space, he says, don't worry, you're not going to die. Hallelujah, right? You're not going to die. I still need to use you, Gideon. You're not going to die. It's okay. And so, uh, and so uh, Gideon is a little bit, his faith is increased a little bit. But does he go right away to call the army? No, he doesn't go immediately. So what does God do? God decides to work with what little faith Gideon has and to try to build upon it. And you'll find in our story that this story really centers around Gideon's growth in faith. You see, he comes to him and he says, I need you to do something for me, Gideon. I need you to go tear down this your father's altar to Baal in the Asherah pole. And I need you to give a sacrifice to me. This is kind of scary because who are all the people worshiping? Baal, yes. So you're talking about if, uh, you know, it would be like somebody coming down and burning down our church. You wouldn't be too happy with those people, right? Yeah, you wouldn't be too happy with them. And so Gideon is a little bit nervous. And so what does he do? He goes and he does it at night, okay? Once again, let's not fault him. At least he's doing it, right? The Lord didn't say do it in broad daylight. He said, just do it. So Gideon does it, and then the men of the city are like, all right, we need to kill this guy. You know, they found out it was him. We need to put this guy to death. And luckily, Gideon's dad, even though he was an apostate, he says, Psh, are you kidding me? Are you really going to fight for Baal? If he can't defend himself, then who are you really fighting for? Wow. Good point, huh? <laughs> Good point. If, if Baal can't defend himself, then why are you worshiping him? Pretty good argument, and that saved Gideon's life. Well, Gideon was given a little bit of increase in faith, and he blows the trumpet, and even some of those people from that town join his army, and all people from Naphtali and other, uh, other tribes come and join the army, ready to go to battle. It looks to Gideon, I've got this army, they're ready to go, okay? About 32,000 men. But still Gideon is a little bit nervous. Now, have you ever had a time when you feel like, yes, God is leading, God is leading, and then you're getting close to doing it, and then you start to say, oh my, is God really doing this? I don't know. I'm just a little bit scared because I'm just getting ready to take the plunge and I don't want to do it if it's going to hurt me in the end and I'm scared and I need another little evidence. Just one more thing, Lord. Please give me some help. And so we get a very famous expression from this next part of the story. Have any of you said before in your life, 
I, I put out a fleece before God. Have you ever said that, anybody? I, you know, if you're not embarrassed, uh, you know, raise your hand, okay? Uh, I, don't be embarrassed, by the way, because it's a biblical thing that, that Gideon did. Well, we get that from him. Gideon decided to put out a fleece. It means to ask God for a sign. And he said, God, I just need a little something. I just need a little something else. So will you do me a favor and make it after the night, make this fleece wet and the ground dry? Because you know, all of it should be wet, right? Because the dew falls on all of the ground. And so the next morning, wow, God did it. And he, he, he was able to wring out about, you know, a, quite a good, a sizable amount of, uh, of water. And, but then something happens, you know, in Gideon's mind. Wait a second. Yes! What if this wasn't the Lord who did it? What if it was just a natural thing, Mervyn? What if it was just a natural thing? I don't know. This is scary. The sign isn't, isn't definite. What do I do? Is the Lord going to get really upset if I ask him for one more sign? And so he says, please don't be angry with me. Could you just indulge me this once more? Just indulge me with one more sign. Can you reverse the miracle? Can you just make the fleece dry and all of the ground wet? And so he puts it out. And the next morning, lo and behold, it has been done. Now, come on, this has to be God, right? This just doesn't really happen, you know, exactly like that. I mean, it happened one way one night, the opposite way against what normally happens. The fleece didn't absorb any moisture. So Gideon says, this is what I need to do. I know God is in this. So you notice, look, Gideon's faith grows a little bit more, right? And so Gideon takes the army. And they're marching toward the Midianite camp. And you can imagine Gideon saying, okay, I've got 32,000. All right, so how big is this Midianite army? I mean, I've heard reports that they are innumerable. I mean, they're, they're as the sands upon the seashore. How are we going to do this? Oh, dear. Oh, dear. And, and, and Gideon is remembering that usual protocol, according to Deuteronomy, is to tell the army, now if there's anybody who's scared, go on home because we don't want to spread the fear throughout the rest of the army. That was something that was put in there. Tell people that they can go home if they're scared, or, of course, if somebody who's just built a house, just gotten married, those different things. But, see, Gideon was like, I'm not going to do that. I need every one of these 32,000. I'm not going to tell anybody they can go home. They better be with me. And so they're marching along, and God says, <clears throat> taps Gideon on the shoulder. Excuse me, Gideon. Yes, Lord. Um, I needed to let you know something. Well, what's that? Is, what, what is it? Yeah, are you bringing more people? or Because uh, you, you, we need, like, you know, a lot more. Like, a lot. Maybe 100,000 more? Yeah. Um, no, Gideon. Actually, I'm here to tell you that, that the army is, is too big for me to let you win. Excuse me, I've been having an, an earwax problem. I, it, it, can, you, can you repeat that, sir? I could, I'm just, you know, I've got a ringing in my ear. Yeah, the, the army's too big, Gideon. Too big. Too big. Yes, too big. Tell everybody that's afraid to go home. Okay. Oh, maybe I'll only lose a thousand or so. Okay. Um, everyone who's afraid can go home. 
Oh, whew, I was wondering when you were going to say that. That 20, 22,000 just left? Are you kidding me? 22? And so Gideon's feeling a little bit faint. <laughs> oh, okay, there's only, only 10,000 left. <laughs> and I'm have to fight the Midianite and the Amalekites and all the people of the East and their huge army. And Okay, we'll, we'll be all right. We'll be all right, Lord. We've still got 10,000. And maybe you'll bring some more that aren't afraid. And maybe you'll go back and give me some more people. And Excuse me, Gideon? Yes, yes, Lord, I, I, I'm eager to hear what you have to say. Well, actually, I just need to let you know something, sir. What's that, Lord? Um, well, the army is still too big. I, I mean, I just can't give the the enemy into your hand with an army this big because really what's going to happen is if I do, then all of your people are going to say, yeah, we did it. We did it. This this was me. We accomplished this victory. And, of course, I know Gideon's thinking in his mind, no, we, we're not going to do that. Please give me my soldiers back. I'm so scared. And the Lord says, no, no. Why don't you take them down to the river, do a test, tell them to drink water, and I'll let you know how many should go with you. And so they do that, and about a few of them go down, and they pick up some water in their hand, and, and they keep going, you know, ready, ready to go, always at the ready. And then some, most of them, went, oh, water, and they knelt down at the river and put their face in and... And started started drinking up the water that way. Does that seem like a very combat-ready stance? Kneeling down with your head in the river? Not quite. And so God says, yeah, um, all the ones that took up water in their hands and were ready, they stayed ready, move them over there and let the other ones go home. And so Gideon's looking, getting a little bit lightheaded again, probably. <sighs> Have low blood sugar or something, or is this just incredible fear? But uh, okay, and so he's so he's looking at who's left, and he counts them up. And uh, and my memory's fuzzy. How how many were left? Three hundred. You mean like no, no. You mean like another zero at least, right? Three thousand or something, right? No, it couldn't be three hundred because that's just crazy. Is it really three hundred? Man, we might as well all go home. I mean, we wait up for the rest of you. <laughs> Please take us with you, right? No, um, the Lord, the Lord said, "Now you're ready with your 300 to do this." <laughs> you know, it's interesting. The Lord was right in what He said that the people will say, "This is because of us that we accomplished this great victory." Because there's another story of a 300 where even though they were 300, we love to give them praise and glory. Have you ever heard of the 300 Spartans that fought against the huge army of the Persians? It's rumored they were a million. Actually, they, they think it was between 100 and 150,000 uh, nowadays. Um, so we kind of pare it down a little bit. But still, 300. But see, now, now, now we, we forget, though, that there were about 6,000 other Greeks with them. But we know the 300 Spartans because it's so amazing what they did, right? And, and we love to say, oh, look at this underdog, them and their rippling muscles and their amazing battle tactics ah, with their spears and, and everything against this mighty horde. 
and they, they fended them off at this narrow pass. Look how, look how great they were in battle, uh, battle planning that they fought here so that they could win and all of this. And we say, oh, the mighty Spartan warriors. Yes, yes. We love stories like that because we naturally like to say, look how awesome these guys are. We don't naturally say, look how awesome the Lord was. And so God decided to make sure that there would only be 300. (laughs) There wasn't 300 plus some others, right? There was just the 300. And how much was the Midianite army? Well, actually, you find out later in the story when you add the numbers together, it's about 135,000. You know, that's actually about 450 to 1. So one soldier would have to fight off more, one and a half times, the entire Israelite army (laughs) to win, right? So, and now, mind you, they weren't defending on a narrow mountain pass. They were the ones attacking. (laughs) So you get this idea of 300 attacking 135,000. This is absolute insanity. Absolute insanity. They can't win, right? Not by themselves. Not by themselves. So Gideon, with his 300, march. And they go up to the Midianite camp and they look down. It's, it's nighttime. And they see the torches and they see the tents, the camels. And they appear to be without number. Whew. We only have 300, Lord. What are you doing? We can't, can we? Can we even do this? And what does God do? God says, Gideon, go down because I've given them into your hand. But, you see, God doesn't even wait for Gideon to say anything. God already knows. God already knows. He says, but, if you're afraid, why don't you go on down to the camp, just sneak up, and see what they're saying. And afterwards, you're going to have confidence. So he takes his servant and They sneak down, and they go around, and they go up to the edge of the camp just when the guards changed. And one guy had just had a dream. And so he says to his friend, I just, I had this dream where this barley cake was rolling down the mountain, the hill, and it knocked a tent, one of our tents, and the tent fell over and collapsed. What a weird dream. And Gideon's listening, waiting to hear whatever God has for him. And his friend says, oh no, surely this is Gideon, the Israelite, and, 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 and their, their God has given us into his hand. And Gideon probably about faints, not of fear, but of just unbelief. Wow. And what does it say? It says, actually, tell me, what does Gideon do? He worshiped. When he heard this, he worshipped. Think about how amazing God is. That he can orchestrate events like this to where the greatest encouragement to his soldiers comes from the enemy. Imagine that. God orchestrates the telling of this dream to the other guy's friend exactly when Gideon is there. And Gideon is listening. And the Lord gives him this wonderful assurance that you are going to be okay. 
Gideon worships. And for the first time, for the first time, we hear Gideon express complete and total faith in what God is doing. For the first time, Gideon's faith has reached a necessary maturation point. He goes up to his army and he says, Get up, arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Not maybe, not I think, not I'm still scared and I just we're just going to give it a shot. He says, no, the Lord has done this. He's given them into our hand. But see, he's not foolhardy either, is he? He decides on a surprise attack, right? So he divides the force 100, 100, 100, and they go and they surround the mighty force in the valley. They surround them on the top of the hill, and Gideon says, listen, when I, they, when I show my torch, because they had torches with, with jars over them and trumpets, right? And so he says, when I break my torch and wave it, you all break yours too and blow your trumpets and say, a sword for the Lord and of Gideon. Yell it out. And so everyone goes around and all of the Midianite camp are feeling this strange sense of, of fear and uncertainty. Only such a fear that could be brought on by God. God was fighting for his people. And so they break the, the jars, they wave their torches, they blow the trumpets and they yell it out. And they start rushing down the hill. Now, if this was any other battle, if, this, if God was not in it, I suppose the enemy would just get up and say, hurry up, let's go fight. And they would go and they would cut down the 300 in no time. But since God was doing this, since God was accomplishing this victory, it says he set every man's sword against his neighbor. So what happens to the Midianites? They get up. And unfortunately, I don't like all the death that happens in all of these wars, but this is what had to happen. And the Midianites get up. They're all confused. They're tired. They pull out their swords and they start killing one another. And so Gideon's army is just still rushing down the hill. And, and if you can imagine, let's just say in the first few seconds, that army was probably cut in half by itself. Wow. And it probably wouldn't take long for the army to cut itself down so much. It's, it's like reverse exponential growth. <laughs> it's exponential decline. Um, they're killing each other. And in no time, there's such a small force that they're losing heart and they start to run away. And so you have the 300 trailing, getting the enemy from behind. And the enemy's kind of getting away. And you have... Gideon in hot pursuit with his 300. It says they crossed over the Jordan. Even though they were faint with exhaustion, they were still pursuing. They pursued and pursued, and they had only 15,000 left. Now, that's still quite a bit, 15,000. Still quite a bit of an army. And uh, I would imagine that they could stamp out the 300 if God was not fighting for his people. But the 300 arrive, and this gives you an idea that none of them died. In the first skirmish, none of them died, the 300. And they attack, and they wipe out the army. I don't know how this is possible, friends. I don't know how this is possible except God. They, 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 they captured the, the princes, 
and they execute the princes. Basically, it says they beat down Midian so much that they never rose their head again against Israel. Wow. Was this a mighty military genius Gideon that, that, that led this campaign and accomplished this great victory? Was this 300? Did they win because of their rippling muscles and their expertise in battle and their long spears and their sharp swords? No. They didn't win because they were so great. They won because God was so great. You see, you see, the God worked that day through an unlikely hero with an incredibly small number of soldiers to win the battle and save his people. You see, because at the beginning of the story, Gideon's response to you mighty man of valor is, are you kidding me? My clan is the least clan in Manasseh, and I am the youngest person of my whole household. How are you calling me a mighty man of valor? But God saw a heart in which he could work. God saw a heart in which he could work. God used a man who would listen to his voice, even if his faith needed to grow. He used who he could use to accomplish his purpose. You see, friends, don't faint when your faith might not be all the way there. Follow along at the steps God gives you, and your faith will grow. We all need growth in faith. God is merciful, and he will do with us what he did with Gideon. He will recognize our trembling faith, and he will say, I need you to do this. And when we do it, our faith will grow in him, and he'll give us a bigger task. And if we do it, our faith will grow, and, if he give, and then he gives us a bigger task. And, and it keeps growing and growing until we have such mighty faith in him that we'll wonder where we were before. And you see, we might wonder, why does God allow, why did he allow the Midianites to come in? Why did he allow all the bad things that happened before? Why does he allow bad things and, and all the struggles to happen in our life? Why doesn't he just block Satan from doing anything? It's because that God's primary goal isn't to just keep bad things from happening. It's not his primary goal to just make sure we're happy or to make sure we're safe. You see, God works for us in a way that grows our faith in him. That's God's main objective. God's objective is for our soul. God's objective is for our faith to grow. So God will work in a way that will grow our faith in him if we will but put our trust there. Because the Midianites were overrunning the country because Israel had not, they had left their faith. They didn't have faith in the Lord. They didn't worship him. And so God said, this is what needs to happen for you to turn back to me. This is what needs to happen. And I will grow your faith if you will turn back to me. Have you had those circumstances before in your life? Have you had times when something seemed to be so unfortunate, you wonder, why? Why is this going on? Why is this going on? It's not because God has left you. And it's not necessarily because you're gone away from him, but it's just because God wants to grow you and work for you in such a way 
that you will be even more settled in your relationship with him. We've got to stick with him. And God will work for you in mighty ways. Just a very simple, um, well, it sounds, it'll sound simple to you, but it was a big deal for me um, and my friend too. This happened to me and also my friend this, this year. I, I, I saw a message from him and I, and I, I saw that, he, that this happened to him too. Um, at seminary, you have to go and you have to take these tests for Hebrew and Greek, right? To, because if you don't have enough proficiency in them, you have to take them again there. You have to take them in undergrad, but then if you get there and you don't do well enough on the test, you get to sit through Greek 1 and 2 and Hebrew 1 and 2. After taking three of each in undergrad, have mercy. I'm not willing to do that, okay? I can't. I will just die if I have to take it again. Even though I enjoyed it, I don't want all that time to be wasted. And so I decided to only do the Hebrew one first, and I, and I got past that. And then I was like, I'm going to wait until next year to do the Greek one. And then I don't know what happened. Sometimes we have momentary lapses of logic, and we, we do silly things. But I saw at the end of the school year, so this wasn't the time of the regular test-out time. This was like the final exam for the Greek class, and I said, hey, I can take it now. Let's do it. I don't know why. And, um, and I had about two days or three, maybe, two or three days, and you know, I signed up. I went home, and I was studying. And you know, when you study for that, you have this in- enormous mountain of stuff you have to look over, and I was like, I am such an idiot. I mean, excuse me, but that's what I felt. You know, excuse me. But I, I am just a big dummy. You know, why did I do this? I'm studying this huge stack of, of vocab because this test was harder than the regular one. And I don't know why I did this. And I don't know why my friend did this either. But we were going through and I felt, well, I feel like God wanted me to do this. But this is ridiculous. And so I get to the test and I spend the entire time on that test. Other people finished and left. Yeah, I finished and left. And I was still there. I was like, okay, okay, no, 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 i got to change it. And I I took the entire time, and I thought, I failed that test. Failed it. But at least I get one more chance. You get two, right? You get two chances to take it. And then when I saw the scores, I just about fainted because God had wrought a mighty victory, friends. (laughs) God had wrought a mighty victory, and the same with my friend this year. And and we we talked about it, and we said, you know what? The lesson we learned was that we don't have knowledge and abilities through our own means. We have knowledge and abilities and wisdom through the ability that God gives. And that showed that anything that I think I know, I don't know it without the Lord. I don't know it without the Lord. You see... And God worked for me in that way. See, this was a big deal to me because it meant having to take some more classes that I didn't want to take or not. And God worked for me in a way that grew my faith in him. And there are so many ways that I know that we would be here all day if you all told all the times when God has worked for you in a way that grew your faith. But don't forget when Midian rears its ugly head. When something seems to be impossible, you can't make it. Remember that God worked through the little band of 300 
to overcome a far superior force so that they would have faith in him. May we remember this story so that we can have faith in God for today, no matter what it is, financial, home finances, difficulty at work, difficulty in families. There are so many things that will come up in your lives, friends, that you will have opportunity to have faith in God. We must do it. Have faith, have faith in Him.